This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 195 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. The last few years, and the most recent election cycle in particular, have brought unprecedented levels of misinformation and disinformation to the fore. This era of online disinformation bots, fake news, and interference from foreign adversaries has sown the seeds of division in our culture, much of it distributed and amplified on social media platforms. Jane Litvinenko is a senior reporter at BuzzFeed News. And over the past several years, she's been focused on disinformation, where it comes from, who's seeing it, how it works, and what might be done to defend against it. She joins us today to share her insights. Stay with us. I've been with BuzzFeed for four and a half years now, and for the the entire time I've been focusing on disinformation and misinformation. Before that, I was a media editor, a reporter, a freelancer. I was sort of early in my career trying to pick up things um, wherever they landed. Uh, But uh, as soon as I started at BuzzFeed, we really jumped into um, the disinformation beat. I started around November 2016, uh, a couple of weeks after the election, and have been at it since. Well, that was a good time to get into the disinformation biz, right? There was a, there was a, 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 lot, a lot to dig into. I mean, is, is this has the tech side of things been interesting to you your whole life, or the is it the disinformation side that that psychological part, which is the which is attractive to you? No, you know, I've always been a little bit obsessive about topics like cybersecurity. Um, I think back when Anonymous was making headlines that really captured my curiosity as a young student at, uh, at my university. Um, and, and I was always sort of curious about this, um, not always seen world. I don't want to call it unseen, but, certainly not seen by everybody, of uh, online politics, online personalities, how they play out, but also the technical aspects of things. Um, I've, been, I've been very stringent about cybersecurity and always um, really interested in that sphere. So when, when an opportunity presented to dig further into it from the perspective of disinformation, of course, I jumped at it because it's such. It was at that time in North America such a novel uh, direction to look in. What was it like for you getting up to speed when when you decide to focus on on disinformation? You know, you're you're an experienced journalist, um, but you want to dig in and, and really focus on this one area. What is what is it like for you? You know, hunkering down to to get all that background information. What is that What is that process like for you? <laughs> that process initially was making a spreadsheet that almost killed me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my first assignment was trying to map out the hyperpartisan left and the hyperpartisan right universes um, oh. in the U.S. and 
um, again, at that time, there were so few people focusing on this area that the research was fairly sparse. Now, there were some academics that have been studying this for years, but it wasn't the bustling conversation topic industry that it was now. So um, essentially for the first couple of months on on the job, I sat down, I opened Google Sheets and I looked for these websites by going down rabbit holes, whether it's on social media or websites that refer to one another, finding their associated uh, um, public accounts and sort of trying to figure out what what was happening, what who the main Major players are who was behind them. Um, was it all U.S. based, or were there foreign um, entities as well? Spoiler alert: there were foreign entities, Macedonians mm. mostly, but um, mm. also lots of other uh, Eastern European countries got in on the action. So, in the end, um, we found something like eight hundred websites that I think we called down. Uh, we called down to maybe six or seven hundred. Uh, but that exercise really allowed me to see what the playing field is and really um, insert myself into it. And, and then where did it go from there? I mean, you're, you're sitting, you're looking at the, all of this data that you've gathered. How do you then distill that into uh, the compelling story that you would share with the world? So uh, BuzzFeed is very lucky because we have a lot of data scientists and people who are used to analyzing things in bulk. So me and my colleague Craig Silverman reached out to some of our colleagues who helped us pull down um, Facebook posts, posts from um, social media to show what the engagement was like on those websites. And the subsequent piece was titled The Partisan Fight for Your Newsfeed. And essentially what we did was we looked at the engagement of, um, of what we deemed partisan media on the left and partisan media on the right. We talked about the main actors and we explained the ecosystem that was uh, forming or maybe already formed, uh, depending on your point of view, um, on Facebook. Were there any striking things about the difference between those two uh, elements? You, know, you say that the left and the right, I mean, was one, was one farther ahead of the other? Was one more organized than the other? Was one more successful in their messaging than the other? Or were they, were they running neck and neck? There were times when they were running neck and neck, but by and large, the right-wing partisan universe won out on pure engagement. Now, this doesn't actually mean that they won out on click-through rates or any other measures that uh, we look at uh, when we look at engagement online because Facebook doesn't share that data. So all we could really measure was how many times have people liked, shared, and commented on this specific piece of content. And that's what we were mm. measuring. And mm. the right wing um, sphere did win out, but that doesn't mean that the left wing sphere was, was very far behind. Depending on the news events, sometimes they were neck and neck. Uh, and the important thing here is that both of them were gaining audiences. Both of them were having 
uh, huge hits on social media. Both of them were having measurable engagement. So it's uh, it's sometimes uh, that that sometimes gets lost in the narrative that we have about disinformation. The fact that the engagement on the left um, also is also significant. What were you able to gather in terms of how folks were using this sort of information that they would get, you know, information, misinformation, disinformation um, versus the stuff that they would get from mainstream, traditional, you know, reliable, professional news sources? Is there, were you able to see the, you know, that, that sort of spectrum of, of how much they were dialing in one or the other? No, and that's a really tricky line to draw. We we can't necessarily say this person took this action because they were looking at this content. And mm. we didn't set out we didn't set out to look at that really because um because proving that even anecdotally showing that it gets very very tricky, you know, um it gets it gets very fuzzy but what we were able to understand is that the business of partisan news hyperpartisan news and sometimes mis and disinformation all of which of course are different um different approaches to the information environment was uh, incredibly profitable uh whether it's on the left or on the right the people who were running these websites were making a lot of money and they were making a lot of money from the advertisements that they played on the websites um or rather the advertisements that they put on the websites um they were raking in huge audiences and it's important to note that a lot of this stuff was not false right it's not it's not a fake it's not like um, a completely made up headline. There was, of course, some of that, but that's not what we were looking at. What we were looking at was um, partisan headlines that very clearly leaned left and right, sometimes to the point of distortion. Um, and mm. that's a really important distinction to make because for social media companies like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, the flat out lies, the completely fake headlines are fairly easy to take care of. And as a matter of fact, we saw over the next year or two, I think around 2018, a significant decrease in flat out fake headlines. But that more partisan, uh, more partisan spin, uh, that is not something that social media companies can very easily tackle. And isn't it sort of a, I mean, against their their self interest as well? I mean, if you're, you know, their their bottom line is based on engagement. It is, and it's important to note here that political content is by far not the most popular content on Facebook. You know, um, if you start opening up some of these monitoring tools, uh, when Donald Trump was president, he would be up there. But um, but otherwise, a lot of the engagement that social media companies uh, get is based on pop culture, is based on um, sort of things that don't have much to do with politics. But it doesn't mean that they don't make money off of the political content that's on their websites. And before before. Facebook and Twitter and the rest of the social media companies in earnest crack down on fake, purely fake news, so purely made up headlines. 
we saw people who created those websites use Facebook's own promotional tools. I don't know if um, your listeners will remember Facebook instant articles, which was sort of touted as a way to help newspapers or media outlets make money. But we did see hmm. um, some fake news outlets uh, use that feature as well. So there's there's a huge financial component to this, both for the people who are creating the content and for the people who are hosting it. Well, let, let, help me understand just some of the, the real basics here. I mean, from how do you define um, misinformation versus disinformation? Right. So um, originally, the term fake news specifically um, was uh, was the most popularized term to talk about um, this information environment. Um, it was popularized in part by my colleague Craig Silverman. And when he used the term fake news, what he meant was websites that are pretending to be news organizations, but instead are writing totally made up headlines, not headlines that are spin, not headlines that are partially correct, real like, um, you know, dinosaurs come back to life sort of fake. Right. The the weekly world news in the, the supermarket checkout aisle kind of thing. Precisely. El- Elvis, Elvis and an alien have visited my church yeah (laughs) that's right that's right okay um but once the term fake news got picked up by politicians sure most notably donald trump but not exclusively him uh Hmm. there needed to be better language to describe what we were talking about maybe more precise language um which is really when disinformation and misinformation start becoming a little bit more popular with reporters. Uh, they're academic terms that people who study this area have been using for a while. Um, but it's really when reporters start to use this terminology. And even though there is a difference between two words, they're generally kind of used interchangeably. But the, the hmm. best way to think about it is disinformation is deliberate spread of false information, and misinformation is mistaken spread of false information. So the deliberate spread, think, stop the steal, for example, the mm. misinformation think your grandma forwarding you a WhatsApp message with bad COVID advice. I see. No, that's a, that's a great way to frame it. What have you witnessed in terms of the growth of sophistication of these actors over the past few years, their ability to distill their messaging and really, you know, target the, the folks they're after successfully? There's a lot, um, a lot that has changed over the last four or five years. And it's gone in a direction where it's much more difficult to keep track of and report on. So once the pure fakes um, sort of got out of the way, that's where the partisanship and hyper-partisanship really flourished. Um, so this both means news headlines um, from places like Breitbart, for example, um, that were misleading. But 
over the last year, we saw a popularization of um, an even different tactic. And that tactic is not necessarily written stories, um, but it's visual. Um, it's videos and photos that are taken out of context. And essentially, the caption on those videos or photos misrepresents what actually happened in real life. And to me as a reporter, that is a particularly scary development because for almost all of us, I think, seeing is believing, right? Um, and when you see a 10 second clip of something happening um, and somebody says, here's what you're seeing in this video, you're going to believe it. And it's going to take um, a lot of effort to explain to the person who believed in that video that actually you should look at this video video for a minute and a half because the minute and a half shows something completely different or you should look at this video from a different angle. Um, that type of context um, addition doesn't play well in social media, um, doesn't play well with the way social media works, and it's much more difficult to tackle. Yeah, I, I remember seeing, you know, things in, in this election cycle when people would hold rallies and so forth. You'd see, you know, perhaps if someone had a rally where they were disappointed in the attendance, they would they would post a photograph from a completely different event that was packed full of people and they'd say, Look how many people came to our rally and but it was a completely different event. There are a lot of very famous examples. Um, this type of tactic was used very, very widely to demonize Black Lives Matter protesters over the summer. And um, in terms of photos being um, being taken out of context, I don't know if you remember, but while the protests were happening, there was an entire narrative about how piles of bricks were left out on the street uh, purportedly mm, yes. so that the protesters would pick them up and throw them. Um, and of course, that wasn't true. You know, um, when you live in a city, there's just construction happening here and there. Sometimes there's construction materials lying around. But that was a real case of somebody taking a photo saying this is actually what this is. Um, and it being very difficult to provide the additional context in that moment. What sort of advice do you have for those of us who are out there consuming this media to best protect ourselves against this? You know, is there is there a way to, to inoculate ourselves? Uh, I think there's three things that I'd like to say on this. The first is don't be afraid of being wrong. Um, we all fall for false information. It happens. It's human nature. It happens to reporters. It happens to academics. It happens to politicians. It happens to our grandparents and it happens to us, right? Um, mm -hmm. this is not, this is falling for false information, um, in itself is not a problem. What is a problem is acting on that false information, whether that's in real life or even just passing on the false information to your followers. And here's sort of the most consistent piece of advice that I give, which is be responsible to the community that you've built online. Whether you have, you know, a hundred Instagram followers or, or a hundred thousand, 
you're responsible for the content that those people are exposed to. So you can turn yourself into a speed bump and try not to pass false information on to your own online ecosystem. And if you do accidentally both remove it and correct it loudly, um, admit to it, say that it's false. And the final thing I'll say is um, build your own online ecosystem. Uh, be very mindful of the accounts that you follow. Be very mindful of where you get your information. Um, really make sure that the information environment that lives on your phone that you doom scroll through um, <laughs> every night instead of sleeping um, is an information environment that is the most likely to get you accurate, um, up-to-date news. Our thanks to Jane Litvinenko from BuzzFeed for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.